we're talking about gender roles in this series. This is the second of a three-part series. We're talking about gender roles in marriage and in ministry. And so we're on part two of gender roles in ministry. And, uh, and so we're dealing with uh, all kinds of really neat topics. Next weekend, I, I hope to, I, I really think I will be talking about gender roles in ministry. We'll talk about passages like, uh, you know, women are supposed to be silent in the church and that kind of stuff. And we obviously know that, right? But that was, you know me better than that, tongue-in-cheek, firmly planted. And, uh, but uh, we're going to look at some of these difficult passages. We're going to, uh, on uh, today we're going to look at two very strategic passages. We looked at Ephesians 5 for gender roles in, in marriage last weekend. We're going to look at 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. And, uh, and just uh, carefully go through and see what scriptures actually have to say to us about these matters. So let's bow for a word of prayer, and let's prepare our hearts to get ready to receive. Pull out your pens and papers and your journals, and, and let's uh, get ready to receive what God has for us in this very, very important area. Father, we want to thank you so much as we're worshiping together. Thank you for a church family that you're building here. It's, it's a big church family, and it's great having so many brothers and sisters in Christ. And thank you that you're building your church throughout the world. One day we will forever reign with you as we were singing this last song. And we look forward to that. And now, Father, as we, as we look at this, uh, at this particular uh, topic that you've placed on my heart to deal with, it's so necessary in this area, in this region, in our church, I just pray that you would give clarity of understanding. I want to thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping me uh, see things in certain ways and be able to put them in a concise way that I believe so that it could be delivered. But I cannot, I cannot get to a heart. I can't even really get to a mind properly. Holy Spirit, I need your help to say it in a clear way with the right tone and inflection and all those things. And we as your people, we need to hear and we need open ears, spiritual ears and spiritual eyes to receive what you have for us. So we ask you for that and thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying... Let's set the tone by just recapping what we said last weekend. And if you weren't here last weekend, I, let me really encourage you in this particular case because it, one message is building on the other. Go back, download the message from last weekend, download it on the internet or, or order your uh, DVD or whatever. But whatever you do, listen to it if you missed it last weekend because some of what I'm saying is assuming that you understand that already. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve experienced oneness. But in consequence of their rebellion, God predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that they would experience brokenness in their relationship. The woman would, be, would have a desire to rule the man, and the man would dominate the woman. That's precisely what we have, dominant patriarchalism and independent feminism, as two extremes and uh, pictures of brokenness in marriage today. And uh, we see it in our world today. In the West, predominantly, we have an independent feminism, though we have uh, patriarchy as well in certain regions, particularly in this region. And then we have a a real strong form of dominant patriarchy in countries uh, such as the Middle East, like Muslim countries and that kind of thing. And that type of thing leads to brokenness within marriage. And in Ephesians 5, we discovered last week there are two things that will move us from brokenness in marriage to oneness in the center, or one fl- the one flesh idea in marriage. The first one was that we need to submit to God so that he can direct our marriages. So as we listen to God in prayer together and share what he's giving us and speaking to us, he directs the home, he directs the marriage, not the man or the woman, but he directs it. And so we hear his words and his thoughts, his pictures, ideas, and and we submit to them. And out of that comes oneness as we submit to him. We move to the center. That's the first thing we uh, understood. The second thing is not only are we to submit to God, but we're to submit to each other. In Ephesians 5, verse 21, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we discovered, as we talked about last weekend, mutual submission in marriage. And uh, husbands and wives are to submit to each other because each has strengths uh, that the other one lacks, whether it's natural talents or spiritual gifts or gender differences or strengths. 
And we talked about some of those gender strengths out of studies that we looked at, uh, published by the uh, Harvard University Press. And we discovered that uh, husbands or men, uh, they are more about achieving things and conquering and that kind of of thing. And women tend to be more about attaching and relationships and communication. Hence the difference between the two. And that's why the two need each other. They each have strengths that the other one doesn't have. And so each one lacks something and we need to submit to those gender strengths within the relationship and, with, and to the uh, spiritual gifts and to the uh, natural talents that each has. And as spouses, we need to submit to them as complementary strengths. And then we'll experience the oneness that, we find in the gar- that was found in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Now... That was a really quick summary. You say, why didn't you, couldn't you say it that fast last weekend? Well, I don't know. <laughs> this weekend, now we'll take the long route again. Uh, I'm going to now address a common response to last weekend uh, from people who just said, well, that, that, is, that was amazing what you showed me, but isn't there this thing about headship? How does headship fit into this whole thing? And so we're going to answer that question now because we can't, we can't do it all in one message. And so now we're, uh, I had a plan to add this piece. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to pick it up. And, but in order to talk to you about the man being the head of a woman and how does that relate to what we just said last weekend when we said it was mutual submission, it looks like it's a contradiction. So I'm going to have to set the context for what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11, otherwise you're not gonna you're, you're gonna miss it, and that's the problem. We just go to our little our little phrase or a little verse, and we just pull it out of its context, and we re, and we say it, and, and and then we think that that's what it's saying, when it may be saying the very opposite of what we think it's saying. In First Corinthians chapter, uh, in First Corinthians, Paul was addressing quite a few need uh, problems or contentions that were taking place in the church at Corinth, beginning with chapter eleven, going all the way to end of fourteen. He lists a litany of problems and he addresses each one separately. Things like how they were dealing with the Lord's Supper. And there were contentions. Some were going there and getting drunk and eating a lot and others had nothing. And so he deals with that situation. And then in uh, chapter 12, he's dealing with spiritual gifts. And some are, some are walking around pridefully because they got certain gifts uh, and, and others don't have that. And so they're saying, I don't really need those inferior ones and all that kind of stuff. So he has to deal with that whole thing and where he says, you know, the foot needs the hand and the eye needs the ear and all that kind of stuff. He talks about unity and he talks about love and how you got to apply love in the context of public worship or in the, in the context of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then chapter 14, he deals with problems associated with uh, the gift of prophecy and the gift of, of spiritual languages or tongues and talks about the problems they're having there. And they're, they were absolutely misusing them in public worship. Some people were uh, abusing them and misusing them. And so he's got to set them straight on that. He's dealing, he's writing to a church a glorious church that God is raising up, but they got problems, and he's got to set them straight. And to begin, and right up front, he begins with a gender issue problem. And the gender issue problem is found in chapter 11, that's the passage we're going to look at now, was this. Should, this was the contention, this was the discussion going on. Should women be allowed to not only worship in public ministry or participate in public ministry in public worship can they and and are they allowed to minister in public worship and the reason for that is that the pagans excluded remember this is being written to corinth there, uh, this is the Greco-Roman time. The Greek Empire had come and gone, and now the Roman Empire was in place. It was a Greek-speaking world. And the pagans of that day excluded women from their worship practices. And the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue practices, was to relegate women to a side chamber or a balcony as silent observers as men worship, kind of like you do uh, in Parliament, you, and, you, and you're up in, the, up in the seats there, and you can observe what they're doing. Well, the women, that's as close as they could come to participating. They could just sit there and watch the men. And so now the, there's this discussion, because there seems to be, there, there are women who are being you know, set free, and their new freedom, they're, they're starting to get involved, and some men don't like it, and some women don't like it, and there's, boy, this back and forth, and he's trying to solve it. 
And Paul's about to clear it up, and so he begins where we will begin, verse 3. And this is what he says, and here's that passage, that controversial passage, that looks like it may be contradicting what I said last weekend about mutual submission. Now, I want you to realize, Paul says in verse 3, that the head, or kaphale, that's the Greek word behind it, of every man is what? Christ. And the head of the woman is what? Man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word head? Probably something like boss, or authority, or ruler, or head honcho, or something like that. But what matters uh, in determining what he's actually saying is not what we th- comes to our minds and what we think it should be. The, what we have to discover is what did the first century reader or hearer understand this word to be. Words change in their meaning. You know, if you, uh, uh, for example, in, the, uh, in, in, my, in my parents' and, and, and grandparents' age, when they said, when they came and they, somebody would say, how are you doing? They would say, man, I'm just so gay today. That had a very different meaning that, that, than what happened in the early 60s when somebody came up to some, somebody comes up to somebody and says, I'm gay They don't mean what they meant back some decades earlier. Words change and meanings change. And we have to understand the context of what they were understanding when they heard the word head. We see it as head of a company, head of an organization, head of the the country, or something like that. But what did they understand? Now, when ministering among the Greek-speaking people, we uh, said that's where Paul was ministering, and it wrote to Corinth in, in, in Greece, Paul will have used the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. In other words, they had the Old Testament, which was the Hebrew Scriptures, but they were trying to minister... To, uh, to the Greco-Roman world or culture, and they were Greek-speaking. And so 70 scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, just like we have uh, translations into English. And uh, that is called the Septuagint. Now, this is, gonna, this is where it starts to get just a wee bit technical. I want you to put your thinking hats on now and, and follow me through because I, I don't want you to get lost in this. It's really important. In the other three services they did, I trust you will too. The word for head in Hebrew is roash. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. doesn't matter. Couldn't care less. But that's the word. As in English, roash can mean part of the body, as in the head that's sitting on your shoulder. So the physical head. Or, metaphorically, it can mean leader or ruler uh, or authority. Now, when roash meant a physical head in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint translators who were translating it into the Greek chose kaphale to translate for physical head, 226 times out of 239 times, uh, that's at 95% of the time. They would choose the word kaphale when, in the Hebrew Scriptures, they saw that he was, they were obviously talking about a physical head. But when they saw that roash or head referred to leader or authority or ruler, they seldom chose kaphale. In fact, they chose some other word 171 out of 189 times, or they only used it 18 times out of 189 times. That's not very often, right? So we say head for head, and we say head for authority leader. They use kaphale for physical head, and then they predominantly used other words uh, when they're talking for authority or leader. So, if in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul meant that man, a man should be the leader, then in all likelihood he would have chosen a different word as well. But we already see, saw in that passage that the word he was using was kaphale. Why is he using kaphale if usually they didn't use it when they're talking about authority or leader or ruler? You would think that he would have. On the other hand, we find many, many times... So far, are you with me on on what I've said so far? Does it make sense so far? Okay, you're with me. On the other hand, we find many, many times in ancient literature where where kaphale meant source or origin. So what we're saying is, this is unexpected. We're thinking that this is talking about metaphorically about the authority leader head... 
But he's using the word kaphile when normally they wouldn't use kaphile for that. And then when we look at how they used kaphile in the Greek, they generally used it to describe source or origin. So then when we're looking at head, uh, you know, Christ is the head of man, it would be uh, like, is he saying Christ is the authority of man? Or is he saying Christ is the origin source of man? Is man the authority of woman, or is man the source origin of woman, and so forth? Okay, that's what we're that's what we're getting at. And in this case, he's using kaphile, which they generally used for source origin. That's what we're discussing right now. This came from the ancients idea, this idea of source origin, that semen, the source of life was produced in the male brain. That's what they believed. And that it flowed down through the body, which is, of course, located, and, of course, the brain is in the head. That's why sometimes when they're talking about source origin, that's where the head relationship to this whole thing comes. Does that make sense? It doesn't, it doesn't, right? (laughs) You're thinking, well, yeah, it does, but, whoa, (laughs) they're kind of (laughs) off. A few feet. Aristotle believed this and influenced generations after him. Therefore, the head represented the source of life for them. So then, kaphile was the word used for the source of a river. See? Hence, we refer to the source of a river as what? Headwaters. Do you see that? So we can, we, we can on one case, on one hand, we'll say he's the head of the company and we mean authority or... Um, head, or, head or, you know, authority or leader, that kind of thing. Or we can say this is the head of the river or the headwaters. And we mean the source or the origin where it starts. Now, this is the question. He's using kaphile, which seems to indicate that he's talking about source origin, but we've been reading it as authority or understanding it as authority leader the whole time. So we've got to go to the surrounding passages of Scripture here and discover which one is the right one. Is it authority leader or is it source origin? We're going to look at three very quickly, uh, quickly at three different clues. Clue number one, the idea of authority isn't even found in any of the surrounding verses. So if you read the rest of the passage there, you don't even see the idea of or actual use of a word like that that would indicate that that's what he's talking about, authority leader. However, the idea of source origins is found in the surrounding passages. For example, in verse number verses 8 and 12, it directly says, For man was not made, what? From woman, source, origin, but woman from man, as for man... Uh, or as for, or for as woman was made from man, source origin, obviously. He's not talking about authority there. So man is now born of woman, same thing, and all things are from God, source origin, again. Clue number two. It is not true that Christ is presently authority or leader of every man. Take a look at what he says in verse three again. Now I want you to realize that the head of or kaphile of every man is Christ. Is it really true? Look around you. Read the headlines. Check, check out what's on TV. Is Gaddafi? Is, is Jesus Christ really the head and authority, and is he actually leading Gaddafi and Mubarak and some of these, these characters in the Middle East, or is he not? No, I don't think so. We know that that's not true. Jesus certainly is not the authority leader of every person, not yet. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess. True? But not now. Not yet. On the other hand, if we take the meaning as source origin, everything seems to fall in place. It's like tape, putting puzzles together. And you got the right piece and you put it like this. Ah, you can't jam that thing in there. And then you just turn it like this and go, oh shoot, it just slips right in there very nicely. That's what we're doing with this puzzle piece. And we say, oh my. Jesus is the source origin of everyone and everything, even though not everyone yet is, uh, acknowledges him as his or her authority leader. True? 
Paul had established this fact earlier in the letter. He said, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. At creation, Jesus was at creation and he was creating everything. He was part of creating you and I. And that is scriptural. So he is the source origin for us, is he not? He may not be leading everybody. They may not all be bowing to him. But he is their source and origin. That's all we're saying. Next, Paul goes on to say that the man was the source origin of the woman. Notice that. Paul was uh, denying the teaching of Greek philosophers who claimed that women had a separate and inferior origin. Now, let's just stop and get this in context again. Why are we getting, oh, getting so nitty-gritty here? We've got to figure out, why are we talking about this? They were, having a, they were having a big discussion. There was all kinds of problems in the church. Some said women couldn't because they were subordinate to men, and men should be doing, uh, could be leading uh, worship and public ministry, and women couldn't because they were inferior. And Paul is trying to establish something. And he's, tur- he's overturning the patriarchy of the day. That's what we're discovering. And what we've been reading as support for patriarchy is exactly the opposite in hierarchy. It's the, that's what we're discovering. So Paul was denying the teaching of Greek philosophers who claimed that women had a separate and inferior origin. Not true, Paul says. They came from the same source... And uh, so they're equal. For example, <laughs> it says uh, the, the man comes from the, oh, the woman in the, one of those verses there. Man comes from, or the woman comes from the man. Well, we know that. Adam uh, or Eve came from Adam, right? The rib. Eve was made out of it. And so some people have turned around and said, see, that demonstrates that she is superior or he is superior. And she is inferior because he was made first and she was made from his side. How about the fact that the, Paul then goes on to argue But after that, every man comes from a what? Ah! (laughs) No kidding. They're trying to change that nowadays. But uh, nothing has changed. It's the same thing. I think God set it up that way, that she would come from him because he knew for the rest of the ages, they would be coming from her. So they were coming from the same source. They're equal. They're one. They're not inferior. She is not inferior to him. That's what he's arguing. Clue number three. The order of the three pairs listed give us another clue because we're talking about Christ Christ is the head of man. And this is how it's listed. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. And God is the head of Christ. But there is a problem. If Paul meant kaphalae to mean authority or leader, we would have expected him to begin in that in that structure with which of those pairs? Does the color give it away? Yes, the yellow one. <laughs> the yellow one, which is God uh, is, the, is the authority over Christ. If this is a hierarchy that he's building, and Paul was a very meticulous and careful, logical, linear writer and thinker. He didn't just write haphazardly. Boy, when you read his epistles, you find that out. <clears throat> he would have started with God is the authority of Christ, Christ is the authority of man, and man is the authority of woman. But he didn't do that. That's another clue. He goes, Christ, man, Christ, man, man, woman, and then God, Christ. And the reason is, he's not giving us a hierarchical flowchart. He's giving us a chronological timeline. Listen, if we read this as origin source instead of authority leader for Kafale, uh, Paul's list makes perfect sense. Because in the order of creation, who's, who, is, who comes from who first? Adam is created first, true? Who's created after Adam? Eve. And then in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman. And who was that? Jesus Christ. A generation, many, many generations later. So if we look at it chronologically, suddenly the whole thing makes sense. It's a chronological timeline that he's talking about, not a hierarchy. And that's his point. And that is his point in, in, uh, in showing us origin and, and uh, that kind of stuff. 
Now, I want you to look at the structure here for a minute. So far, are, does this make sense? Uh, like, are you with me on this so far? Okay, good. I'll take that by faith as yes. <laughs> now we have to do one more. Uh, you're, you're almost through some of the technical stuff, but you see why we have to do this technical stuff? Because the biases have been so strong in favor of patriarchy. If you're going to show it to be anything else, nobody will just take my word for it. <laughs> So let's go and find out what the scriptures are actually saying. And to do that, we've got to do a little bit of the hard work. Okay, let's look at the structure that Paul is using. And, and, and structure is very important in scripture because uh, you know that uh, Chris and I, when we speak, and uh, others who speak, when we go, you know, I go with my point A and my point B, and we follow it logically, right? And we, and we have ways to do it we want because it helps everybody stick together and think together. Paul did the same thing. He didn't just write arbitrarily. And he has a structure here that scholars call the ABAB structure. Okay, the A1, so you see on the screens there, you see the A1, then B1, then A2, then B2. And what he's doing is, in A1, he talks about the right attitude uh, toward women, you know, and he's trying to argue that they're coming from the same source, therefore, and they're equal. That, that's what he's trying to change your attitude on, on that, and not say that they're inferior. He's changing our attitude. Then he goes to B1, and for a few verses, verses 4 to 7, he talks about the right attire they should wear as a result of that, in public ministry, okay? Then he goes to B2, and he goes right back to the same thing. He's talking about the attitude again, about women. How do you view them? Are they inferior, or are they equal? And he argues that for uh, three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, and then he goes right back to a discussion on right attire for public and, and, and public ministry, and how do they fit in that, okay? Now, we don't have time to look into B1 and B2 right now, okay? the practical outworking of it. And for the purpose of this message, we just need to cull out of there the right attitude about women. What did he believe about them? And I would like to go in the other part, but there's just too much to cover here. And I got a lot of ground to cover. So maybe next week we get to it or something like that. But it's, it's exciting. So looking at A1 and A2, and we've been talking about A1 now in verse 3 for some, some time. Now we move on to A2. And he continues his discussion. He says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And then he says something very curious. He says, Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on or overhead. And you notice that I've got in brackets uh, a symbol of. And I have it in a different color for a, a good reason. Over her head because of the angels. The addition of these words by many translators distorts the scriptures. Now, this is what I want you to understand. Okay, very quick uh, little lesson in interpretation here. But the Bible, the tra- everybody says, uh, pick up your Bible. What they really mean is, pick up the translation of the Bible. Does that make sense? If you have a translation of the Bible, you do not have the original. Yes? True? Therefore, what you essentially have, now I'm going to say this very carefully and don't just run out the doors. Hang on for a second, let me explain. What you essentially have is a commentary about the Bible. Ooh, that sounded scary. It isn't. Because you have a human hand now getting involved and when they get to different passages, they take their biases too and they say, does it mean this or does it mean this? Like what we've been talking about, authority, does it mean... And they go with their biases. The culture will affect them and everything and they'll say, I think, I think this is what it means. And so they translate it the way they think it means when they have those choices. And here, when you see a symbol of authority, do you know why I have that in color? Because it is not in the original. It is, uh, uh, and in fact, that's why I use the NASB here, North American Standard Bible version, because it shows up in the italics. In your other versions, I'm use, I use the NIV all the time, it doesn't show up. You just read it as uh, have a symbol of authority on their head, on her head. That's what it says. But in the NASB, they tip you off that actually, even though they put it in there, it isn't actually there. They're tipping their hand, uh, they're tipping their hand and saying, this is what I think it should mean. 
And part of it's influenced by what their bias is. Okay, so then we've got to go back and take a look. Wait a minute, why are they putting this? And this is very important. Um, Because it makes it appear that if the woman has a symbol of authority on her head, then that seems to tip it off as that she is in subordination to somebody. So, for, for example, do you, and occasionally we have women who come here and they've got something on their head. This is, not, this is not maligning anybody, okay? We're trying to get at some truth here. Now, if you put something on your head, I asked the first service last, last night, well, what, do you, what do you call that in low German? And, and a bunch of them yelled out, a, a, a duke. So if you're a French, Ukrainian, whatever, that's what it's called, duke. And I quickly grabbed my pen. I did this last night and I wrote duke. So if you've got the last name Duick, <laughs> guess what you are? <laughs> That's the meaning of your name now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, a Duick. And, and this is what I want to say to you. Uh, if, if you really believe that, that, you are in subor- uh, that a woman is supposed to be in subordination to the man, uh, the authority leader thing, there's a hierarchy, a patriarchy, then, let me say this, then this passage you should keep that symbol in there and you should, co- you, should be, you should start wearing your dukes. In fact, this is what I want to say. If you want to come to me and disagree with what the passage says, put your duke on first. Because otherwise you're living inconsistently. You're saying, I believe the patriarchy hierarchy thing, but I don't believe in putting on the duke. Well, you better put it on then and be consistent. Or don't put it on and discover what it's actually saying. <laughs> okay? So I admire people who do actually say they're patriarchy because they uh, believe in patriarchy, and then they wear them. I, I admire them because they're actually living consistently. So I, I don't malign that at all. Please don't misunderstand me. They're wonderful people. I just don't agree with what it's saying. The phrase translated authority uh, o- so over, okay, is exousia epi. Okay, so what it, uh, can we go back to that verse again? <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. Okay, so if you take that out, it's saying, therefore the woman ought to have authority over. I put that word over in there, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, uh, because uh, that word isn't in there, uh, in the verse there. Authority over on her head. Meaning, she has, see, if you say she has a symbol on her head, of subordination that she has to submit, then it means she is in subordination and she must submit. But if you take that symbol out of there and you say authority over her head, what it's saying is she actually has authority over her head and she can determine what she wears on the head just like the man can. Now, does that make sense, what I just said? No? Should I go back? Okay. If it's saying, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, then what it's saying is, she is in subordination. True? If she has to put something on her head that says she's subordinate, then she has to be subordinate, right? If she has to have a symbol of authority on her head. She's walking around with this thing on her head, and she's saying, I'm submissive, I'm submissive, I'm submissive. That's what it's saying. But, if that is not actually in the passage, and it actually reads, therefore the woman ought to have authority over her, and we could say over her own head, it suddenly flips the whole thing. She has authority now over her own head, just like the man does. True? Now, do you get it? Does that make sense now? Yeah, okay. So do you see that by doing that, you can flip it one way or the other? That's why this is so critical. Thank you for talking to me, whether you get it or not. I'd rather go back and you get it than you walk out confused. All right. Now, you say, but are you, actually, are you actually reading that right? We know that that word isn't there, but is it actually authority over? Is it translated like that? Well, back to the next slide. Exousia epi is, the tra- uh, is translated authority over 15 times. 15 times it's used. This very phrase is used in the New Testament all 15 times. It simply says authority over. For example, and I went and I checked the passages. Revelation chapter 2 verse 26 says, To him who overcomes and does my will, to the end I will give, what? Authority over the nations. Very clear. (laughs) 
right? The word authority, or exousia, means the right authority, freedom, and decision-making ability. Paul was simply saying that women have authority over their own heads, just like men do, in this case, what to wear uh, on their heads. And this is supported by what Paul said in verses 8 to 9. He said the man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And we looked at that last week where it said, uh, you know, people say, well, she was made as a helpmeet or a helpmate. And we discovered that that word really means, uh, when I asked the question, I said, if you, were, if you were, uh, had a math problem, would you ask somebody who's dumber than you or smarter than you for help? And suddenly we found she was in some dumb sidekick, you know, some dumb blonde idea. And uh, then, then I said, if you were being bullied at school, would you ask for somebody weaker than you or stronger than you? And that we, we discovered that that same word is used of God when it says he is uh, our present help in time of need. Aren't you glad he's not inferior to you but superior? And that he can really help you? Now, we're not suggesting that women are uh, a superior now. We're not going to independent feminism. We're just saying that they are complementary equals. That's what we're saying. And what Paul says immediately following also supports this idea. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all, all things originate from God. Clearly, they come from each other, and they both need each other Equally. So Paul has established two things in this fight that's going on at the church at Corinth. He's saying... They came from the, same, from the same source, and they're coming from each other. And they both come from God. That's their origin. So they are equal. And number two, he says, and she has authority over her own head. That's his argument. So now he's trying to, why is he establishing this? Because now he's going to go into talk about public ministry and how they ought to uh, act there. And he's saying, she she can be in, uh, participate in public worship and she can minister in public worship. But we're going to talk about that more next week. But notice what he says. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head. And then er, verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head. When you pray, you speak to God on behalf of the people and in simplistic terms. And when you prophesy, you speak to the people on, on behalf of God. And it's saying the man can do it and it's saying the woman can do it. And uh, that's what he's talking about. So contrary to pagans and Jews who didn't allow women to participate in public worship, Paul says that women can even minister in public worship. And he's, he's, he's making that parallel. We're going to uh, jump right ahead now, just for the sake of time here. And because Peter had said the same thing in Acts 2, you know, about um, uh, the Spirit of God would come on men and women and, and their sons and daughters and all that. But now, there are really big implications that come out of this. And that's what I want to get to. If what I just said is true, and it is true. I demonstrated it. That means what I, that supports everything I said last weekend as well. But if this is true, there's huge practical implications come, that come out of this. A couple uh, sat, uh, sat with Fran and I some time ago. And uh, we had a wonderful time, an hour and a half, two hours, discussing uh, spiritual things, and their family, and that kind of stuff. And they talked about how the husband had really got with it spiritually. He had fallen in love with Jesus Christ, and he was just, he was just taking responsibility now, and he was, and he was modeling, he was loving his wife unconditionally, and he was, he was serving her, and he was sharing with her his devotions, and devotionals, and, and journals, and all this kind of stuff. And they were doing it back and forth. They were growing in their marriage. They were modeling it to their children, and their children were now grown children, were now responding and changing in, in terms of what they were seeing. And right toward the end of the discussion, I took up my pen because she looked at me and she said this. She said, go tell the husbands to fight for their families because it worked for me. My husband fought for my family. And I, I thought it was so significant, I wrote it down, and I even asked if they would consider, you know, uh, doing a testimony. That's a little bit too fresh. Maybe in a few years or something, uh, they'll be able to testify, but it was that good. But I want to take this a step further now. 
Because there's a stat that troubles me deeply in the context of what we've just been talking about when you consider that over 80% of kids from evangelical homes in the U.S. leave the church at 18 years old and don't return. It's frightening. True? I mean, it ought to really keep us up at night. That ought to bother us. But here's what I wish to say. Yes, husbands, it's time to get with the program. Time is short. No question about it. There's kids' lives at stake, a lot of them according to these stats. But here's what I wish to say in addition to that. Wives, you too can and must fight for your families spiritually. Quit worrying about who's the spiritual head and who's at the controls of your marriage. Jesus set you both free to minister. Amen? I want to ask you this question, ladies. If your kids were trapped in a building on fire, would you wait for your husband to take the initiative to save them? Huh? No, you wouldn't. Would you uh, get on your cell phones and phone them if they were in another part and ask for permission whether you could go and save them? And if he said, no, you can't, what would you do? Would you obey? I don't know one of you that would. Not a chance. We've got far more at stake than a burning building right now and kids trapped in a burning building. We've got a generation of kids that need to be set free and recovered from the snares of where they're headed. Because where they're headed is for eternity. And we need every living man and every living woman fighting on their knees for their kids. And forget this whole thing about spiritual headship. It's not there. He's saying, you are one, and together you must fight for your kids. Both of you, early in the morning, you're up on your knees. When it's pitch black, long before you're going to work, and you're pleading, and you're fasting and praying for them, fighting for them, contending for them, and late into the evening, and you change and you transform, and as they see your attitudes and you, you change and transform, eventually God can do something, right? There's a wonderful woman in the Old Testament. There's a number of them. There's great women in the Old Testament. One of my favorite is Abigail. You remember Abigail? She had a husband, Nabal. Nabal was very wealthy, a thousand goats, three thousand sheep. He had a very intelligent and beautiful wife. And David sent a servant to say to Nabal that David and his men had protected Nabal's shepherds and herds so that they had lost none. And now David, who is in need, he's got 600 men and he needs, some, he needs some provision for them. And he's saying, look, we've been really helping you guys. Would you help us out a little bit right now? And I want, you, I want to pick up the story in verse 10 of chapter 25, 1 Samuel. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Well, David was insulted, greatly insulted and angered. And he ordered 400 of his 600 men to strap their, soldier, uh, their swords in preparation to attack Nabal. But one of Nabal's servants told his wife, Nabal's wife, Abigail, how Nabal had treated David's men, and uh, uh, whose, whose men had been so kind to them. And it says that Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two, two large skins of wine, five dressed sheep, 100 cakes of raisins and grain and so on and so forth. And in verse 19 it says, She told her servants, go on ahead. She sent all this stuff ahead and I'll follow you. And then it says this, But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Good for her! <laughs> Jerk! She did the wise thing. You'll see in a minute. When she met David, she resolved the issue with a sincere apology. She fell at his feet, it says, and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. That's what she called her husband. 
He is just like his name. His name is Fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent, and let this gift which your servant has brought to my master, David, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense. Look at David's response. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment. And for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. We need women of good judgment who will join men of good judgment and character and spirituality who will fight spiritually on their knees and in their marriages, modeling Christ-likeness, an attractive thing to their kids, whether they are grown or not grown. The second thing is, we need to save our culture. That's the second implication that comes out of this. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, we'll look at another passage here where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. What's he saying there? Well, in the context of 1 Peter, chapter, uh, of 1 Peter, uh, Peter is addressing converts from paganism again. The Greco-Roman woman was expected to follow the religious choices of her father and after marriage her husband. A wife could not have friends of her own. Plutarch says that. She could only have the friends that her husband had. And she could not, she could not make religious choices of her own. She had to follow the gods of her father. And when she got married, she had to forsake those gods and follow the gods of her husband. She had no choice in this. That's the context in which Peter is talking about wives submit to your husband. Now, we're going we're to see what, what's going on here. Um, uh, women were ruled by men because they were considered to be inferior. And in this context, Peter said the teaching, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands, would sound quite normal to wives. It was what their pagan society had always taught. Now, was Peter contradicting what we just saw in Paul a few minutes ago and last weekend? Well, we'll see it isn't. If we look at the broader context, we'll discover something very important at play here that's going to be critical for us at the end. And the first thing we see is that Paul, I mean Peter, was talking about submission on a grander scale. If you go to chapter 2, the first thing we see him saying is citizens submit to the authoritarian governments of the day. We think of it as democracy. No, no, think about the Middle East today. And he's saying, I want you to submit yourselves to the author- evil authoritarian governments like Gaddafi and Libya. That was what their, that's what their governments were more like. He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or as the supreme authority. And he goes on. And then he gives the reason in verse 15 to 16. He says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. He's saying, for the sake of the gospel, I want you to submit yourselves to these evil authoritarian governments. I don't want you to bring any ill repute on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want you to do nothing that would hinder the progress of the gospel. Uh, Was Peter endorsing the wicked uh, authoritarian governments of the day? Do you think he was? Church? No, not a chance. He was simply saying, don't bring ill repute on the gospel. Second thing, slaves were to submit to cruel masters. He says, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are what, church? Harsh. Was Peter endorsing slavery, church? No, he wasn't doing that by, by no means. Look what he says next. And here's the reason. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Peter knows that to overthrow the structures of the day, whether they were the, uh, the wicked authoritarian governments or the repressive uh, uh, systems of slavery, might be impossible to overthrow that. But he's saying within the context of those big evil things, because we're living in a fallen world, amen, he's saying, be willing to give up your freedom and submit to those in order that the gospel isn't brought into ill repute and that the gospel can, can move forward. 
And uh, so he says, uh, he, he called slaves to accept unjust suffering based on their identification with Christ. He says, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And in doing that, Peter knows that good will come out of it and God's kingdom advanced. Look what he says about this. We'll go jump right to verse 24, the next slide. He says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. So he said, Jesus submitted to these evil systems and he died, even though he was completely free, he died and look what you gained from it. And he's saying, now do the same thing. Now that I've established that, Peter moves to the very next submission section, beginning in the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1. So he's gone, point A, it's a message. Point A, citizens submit to authoritarian governments. Point B, on submission, slaves submit to your cruel masters. Point C, this is his last one, wives submit to your husbands, many of them unbelieving. Now, was Peter condoning, and it's unfortunate we've got the chapter division there. They're not inspired chapter divisions. They're put there to help so people just jump to chapter 3, verse 1, and ignore the rest of the message. That's like going to my message and starting with point C. That'd be terrible. (laughs) Well, some of you might like it. You'd get to, to go to dinner a little sooner. But look what he says. Wives in the same way. In the same way as what? As The others submitted, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of of your lives. There it is again. Submit for this reason, for the sake of the gospel. Is he saying submit for the sake of submission? Is he saying it's good for wives to be in a repressive thing? No. Do you know what the husbands had? Every, last week I told you some things, this time again. Do you know what husbands had the le- sole legal right to determine if the woman's babies lived or didn't? She would give birth and she'd say, oh, girl, go and drown her. And that's what they did with many of them. Drowned them. And it was perfectly legal. It was common. Not only that, and, and if it was a guy, oh, yeah, we'll keep that one. Raise them good. And if he wanted to divorce her, he could divorce her unilaterally, but she couldn't divorce him. She had no reciprocal rights. She was like a slave. Do you think that Peter was condoning that kind of patriarchy and hierarchy in marriage? By no means. That's the kind of people he was writing. No, that's not what he was condoning. Um, uh, But again... Uh, the husband, uh, uh, Peter says to, and he says to these kind of women, these that are under that kind of evil system and repression, he says, you submit. And the reason is so that they may be won over. Peter, like Paul, didn't want citizens, slaves, and wives to exercise their freedom and rights if by doing so they caused harm to the gospel. And Paul had said that in 1 Corinthians 9. He had said, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. And then Peter tells the wives to submit not only outwardly, where they really didn't have any choice anyway. (laughs) They were under submission whether they liked it or not. They really didn't have a choice. The point was, he was getting to the heart. And that's why he says what he says next. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He says, I want you to agree with it and submit in your heart because that's what's going to show forth and it might save some. Are you willing to do that, ladies, for a short time and then you get heaven after that for eternity? That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? Peter didn't support it. Now, this is what I want to say. We have a great Christian heritage here and much Christian memory still here. But this region has a great deal of hierarchy and patriarchy embedded in it. I'm not blaming anybody, and if I'd lived a few decades ago, I'm sure I would have believed it the same way. My marriage has never worked like this. I've, I've worked in mutual submission 
for 37 years, and that's why I believe we have such a wonderful marriage with Christ at the head. And, uh, but this hierarchy and patriarchy is deeply embedded in this region. And uh, because of it, we've seen a great deal of physical abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse, all kinds of abuse, which is so sad. And has had a terrible, has, has brought terrible repute on the gospel of Christ. Terrible. And it's hindered the gospel from going forward. People from outside the region, they look at some of that. The social workers, and especially, they, they've seen much of it. They're completely turned off by it. And, the, and so they should. Do you know, I was just talking to a woman. She told me I could say this. Just between the services this morning. She was weeping, standing out there, weeping. I was talking to her, and uh, she'd be about 40 years old, something like that. She said, last week, you told, us, uh, you told us that the Greco-Roman girls often weren't given first names. She said, do you know that in my family, I was the only daughter, and I was not given a middle name while everybody else was because I was a daughter. And she was weeping when she told me this. I said, you're kidding. And she said, but that's not why I'm telling you this. She said, at the end of the service, we sang a song, Restoration. Bring restoration, bring restoration. You know that song? We'll be singing it in just a couple minutes. And in the song, when, when you get to it, remember this woman. It says, you've called me by a new name. Do you remember that piece? And the Holy Spirit just spoke to her and said, See me this week. I, your heavenly father, have a middle name for you, and I will tell it to you. And she just wept before me as God performed inner healing on her. What a good God, amen? But we have this stuff, this junk in this area, and it's not good. It's very bad. And we must not be part of that. We must not be seen to be part of that. We must stand against it wherever we can. But beyond that, our Western societies, unlike Greco-Roman societies, do not give exclusive authority to the husband anymore, do they? Guys, you can't do whatever you want. Neither would they look uh, regard favorably if a wife were to have to call her husband Lord, which is what that passage talks about. They did it only for the sake of the gospel. That's the only reason. Not because that was a creation principle. Now, using that same principle of not doing something that would bring ill repute on the gospel and prevent it from going ahead, we should be doing this in reverse. Because our society, unlike that society, does not support this kind of thing, and yet the church quietly supports it. And we need to say we don't agree with that because as long as we continue to... Can you imagine if a woman has friends? Let's say she's in a patriarchy kind of marriage. And she, uh, she goes to her friends, and she's got friends. They're, they're, not in, they're unchurched. They don't know Jesus. And she tells them, or relatives, and she talks about... And they say, well, let's do this. And she says, well, I'd have to ask my my permission from my husband, and he tells me I'm not allowed to do it, so I have to obey him. That will bring ill repute on the gospel and hinder us from being able to move forward. The same principle, but now based on truth, we actually have it right. Mutual submission is where we have to aim for in our marriages in fighting for, the, for our kids, but also in fighting for our culture. We've got to get it right. We've got to get it right. I, I'm just determining whether to tell you this one thing or not, because time's, time's over. I'm going to have to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put it aside. Galatians 5 says, For freedom, Christ has set us free, and stand firm, therefore, and do not submit against, again to a yoke of slavery. Many of you have been practicing mutual submission in your marriage, though you call it hierarchicalism or patriarchy, because that's what you were taught. Great. Now you have the proper theology that matches your practice. Keep practicing what you were doing and have good marriages. 
But you may be one of those men who has dominated and controlled your spouse and family, sometimes through fear. We deal with it right here. Maybe you've been emotionally, mentally, or physically abusive. Go home and repent to your wife and to your family and your children and commit to mutual submission. Maybe you're a wife who has been passively and idly sitting by, waiting for your husband to initiate everything spiritually. It's time to take your rightful place as a daughter of Eve and help save your family and culture while you still have time. Amen? Church, amen? God, help us in these, in these last days, in these troubling days, to be a bright and shining light, light in, your, in our families and in our culture that they may be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.